Okay, well, we're going to be back in the book of Proverbs today. So if you have your Bibles, we're actually starting into a new chapter. We're going to be in chapter 3. We're going to take the first 12 verses of chapter 3. Now, when we think of Proverbs, we often think of those one or two-liner sayings, right? Those one-liner sayings, because that's what a proverb is. And this book is full of Proverbs. But um, there's so much more to the book of Proverbs than just those one-liners, right? The, the, the book of Proverbs, it really schools us not just in the wisdom of the Lord through these Proverbs, but it, it schools us on the entire concept of wisdom. And we need that, right? We need to know what it means to be wise. We need to know what it is, where it com- comes from, you know, why it is, we, its origin, its purpose, how you obtain it, how we value it. And so we've, we've talked about these things as we've gotten into the book of Proverbs so that we can appreciate and have a better understanding of wisdom that comes from God. And so this is not just a, a book of like Christian fortune cookies, but rather it is the counsel of our Father's wisdom, and he's offering it to us. I think, I think the beginning of Proverbs wants us to see, uh, make us aware of this offering of wisdom that God uh, offers us throughout his word. And, and it's done, as we've studied in Proverbs, this offering of wisdom to us to make us aware of this. It's taught to us in the context of a father sitting down with his son. This is King Solomon teaching his son, and he, he just wants to transfer his wisdom to his son. And so this is the, the context within which we are offered or made, made aware of this offering of wisdom from God. And so up to this point, King Solomon has emphasized to his son the, this high value he should place on this wisdom, the extreme benefits of all of this wisdom, and how God protects us by giving us this wisdom. He gives us this wisdom, and it functions in that it protects us from harm. It shields us from what is wrong in this world. It guards us with with discernment, a discerning heart and a discerning mind. And so this is for the upright, those who are pursuing the holiness of God. And and, and, and biblical lingo for for that person is those who fear the Lord, right? And so we're going to take the first 12 verses, and and what what we see here are five commands and five promises that go along with those commands. And so in chapter 3, he's, he's, he's about ready to motivate his son. I want to motivate him to pursue this wisdom now. I've, I've emphasized how he should value it, the benefits from it, and what it is, its origin, and all that stuff. But now I want to, I want to really motivate him to receive this wisdom. And so there's commands and promises. And an easy way to look at it, all of the odd numbers, odd-numbered verses, those are the commands. Although the even-numbered verses, those are the promises. And so let's just read the first command and promise here in the first two verses of Proverbs chapter 3. It says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For the length of days and years of life and peace, they will be added to you. So here, do you see how that worked? There was a command. And then there was a promise. What was the command? Keep my commandments. And the promise was that peace and length of days. See, there's a promise that coincides with that command. And so keeping keeping my commands, you ever ever tell your kids, you know, like, hey, keep my commands. That's what parents will say to their kids, right? And, and, And when we teach our kids and we command our kids and tell them what to do, 
What do they often say? Well, why? Why should I do those things? And so when we are impatient as parents, when we give those commands to our kids, sometimes we just totally bypass the why, don't we? Because we're just impatient. I, I, I fell into this literally just this past weekend. Just do what I say because I said it, right? Have you ever been there as a parent? Just do what I say because I'm saying it. And then you should just do that. <laughs> but when we're patient as parents, right, we, we include the why. And so this is a, this is a patient posture that King Solomon is taking with his son. I mean, listen to my commands, but let me tell you, the, let me tell you why. It's because I want what's best for you. It's because I want God's peace for you. I want your, I want your length of days to be many. I want you to have life in, in abundance, right? It's always important to include the why. You know, just recently I was on vacation, as many of you have been vacationing here recently, and, and I was, I was at, we were at Naples, and uh, the, one of the last days we were there, we're at the beach, and Emmett and I decide we're going to walk down to the pier. <laughs> so we walk down to the pier, we go all the way to, uh, out to the end of the pier, and as we're getting on the pier, what we discovered was that that was the last day of school for Naples. So evidently tradition, if you are a high schooler in Naples, Florida, on the last day of school, you get out of school, and you go to the pier. And so here we are on the pier, and we're, we're just surrounded by hundreds of high schoolers trying to put out the vibe. It was a nightmare. So we're out there, and they're all in swimsuits and putting out the vibe and trying to impress the girls and doing everything. And we're stuck out there. We're, we're actually watching. We're trying to watch people fish off the pier. And this guy's reeling in like a four-foot shark, and we're enjoying that. But then at the same time, we, we notice there's this drama playing out to our left. So th there's the shark, and we're entertained by that. And then there's this drama. This kid, Emmett, taps on my shoulder and said, Hey, hey Dad, uh, you might need to intervene over here. That girl's trying to talk that kid, that guy, into jumping off the end of the pier. <laughs> I'm like, well, let's just see if he's dumb enough to do it. <laughs> uh, this, might, this, could be, this could get good. And so it, it's so true. Like, this, this kid was like, oh, should I jump off? Should I jump off? And, and the girl, it was just this classic moment, right? The girl's like, oh, you know, do it, Johnny. It's going to be so cool. You know, it's just like one of those moments, like so, so cliche, right? So it's unfolding, so we're watching the shark and, and keeping half an eye on this kid. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I don't want to jump off the pier and save this kid. Maybe I'll just throw his friends in after him or something. And, it, 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 I, and I said, Emmett, I, I use this moment to teach my son, right? Just have a, it's just him and I on the pier, and we're watching this unfold. I'm like, promise me you'll never date that girl. <laughs> so he's like, oh, yeah, definitely not. And, and, and he said, but, but Why? <laughs> I said, let me tell you something about that girl. That girl's in every generation, at every school, in every class. That girl's in your grade right now. I don't know who she is, but that girl's there. The girl that wants you to do something stupid to impress her. Don't ever date that girl. I said, oh, okay, yeah, but why? <laughs> you, know, you know, he's probably thinking, well, that's a pretty good-looking girl. I'm going to need more of a reason, Dad. I don't know. So I'm like, well, because, you know, you do something... If he has to jump off that pier, if he somehow survives, you know, not getting bashed against the barnacles on the pier, you know, poles or whatever. If he somehow makes the swim back, he's just got to do something dumber to keep her around down the road. So it's exhausting. You don't want to date. Don't date the girl that's impressed by stupid things. Date the girl that's impressed by smart things and then do those smart things. It's too exhausting. It's too costly, right? You know, when we give our kids counsel. It helps to motivate them with a promise. Hey, if you walk down this path, I'll tell you where it leads. 
more stupidity. And so this, this command actually, keep my commandments and your days will be in, in abundance and you will have peace. It reminds us of the fifth commandment, right? It's almost the fifth commandment verbatim. When you look at Exodus 20 verse 12, the fifth commandment says, Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So these commands, he's saying, hey, listen, these are, these are, these are what is best for you. God's wisdom is what's best for you. Your obedience, your fear of the Lord, your obedience to God, that brings you shalom or peace. I don't want you to live in the chaos of disobedience, but that's what will happen if you walk down that road. So isn't that interesting, though, because when, when our culture talks about the commands of God, when we start to think about the do's and the don'ts that are, uh, that are associated with our faith or taught in Scripture, it's oftentimes that we talk about those things, well, don't be legalistic, and that's true, but we talk about the do's and don'ts in, in a sense that uh, it's the most unappealing aspect of our faith. Like Christian morality is portrayed as the most unappealing part of Christianity. And so we talk about sometimes, or, or society will talk about the Christian faith and Christian morality or biblical morality in a way that represents God as cruel. As if he's trying to put these commands in our life so that he can prevent us from obtaining this joy that we want. But what we read in scripture is that these commands are, are to ensure that we receive this joy that God has for us in this life. And so what we see here in this next command and promise is that God is characterized, his, his, his holiness and who he is, he's characterized as loving and faithful when he gives us these commands. Let's, let's read verses 3 and 4 and let's read the next command, the, ne the next promise associated with that command. He says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. So just like we studied in the Fruit of the Spirit series, like when it comes to love, that, that love and steadfastness is describing God. And God is, he is the epitome of love. He is the epitome of what it means to be faithful because he is perfectly loving all the time. And he is perfectly faithful all of the time. And so what we're learning here in Proverbs is, I think that's telling us as we read through this, hey, make sure you always let who God is change you. Don't let who you are change who God is. Let who God is and his morality change who you are. God is unchanging. We are the ones who need to change, right? We get that backwards so often because the temptation to adhere to, to societies, whatever society you live in, whatever point in time you live in, right, Morality in different cultures and different times, it, it varies and it changes. And, you know, this culture takes over and now this is what morality looks like according to this culture. And then that culture rises up and this one falls. And he's got a different version of morality over here, a different version of who God is over here. And so it's often the times that we get this positively backwards. We just, this is who we are as a society. And, the, and then we're going to fit God into our agenda and our narrative and what we think things should be. We're going to change who he is to adapt to who we want to be right now. The Bible says no, that's just not how it works. We're just, we're just fooling ourselves when we behave like that. The Bible would say that's, that's not how it works. Make sure you always let who God is change who you are. And so we need to bind his teachings like, and, and wear it like a necklace, right? Wear it around our necks. 
We need to write them on the tablet of our hearts. What does that mean? Well, we wear it around their necks for everyone to see. This is just who I am. I'm just going to be open and honest about who I am. I'm, I'm a child of God, and I believe who he is, and I believe he is who the Bible says he is. I believe morality according to his word. That's just who I am. We wear it around like a necklace for people to see. We, but, but we do more than that, right? It's not just about the, the, the cross necklace or the, the, the cross tattoo. Right? I think I'm the only X-29 pastor that doesn't have a tattoo. <laughs> I almost wear that like a badge of honor. <laughs> Anytime I'm around a bunch of the, those guys, like they're all about the, the tattoos and stuff. That's not anything against tattoos, but it's just not my jam. But, but it needs to go more than just something we portray to men, right? God can see in our heart. God can see what man can't. We need to not only wear this like a necklace, we need to also write it on the tablet of our hearts, internalize it. Belief is internal. It's, it's this inward trust in God. And so we will have favor with God and man, it says. And so when we cherish and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we preach every Sunday here at The Journey, as we, as we believe and cherish this gospel in our hearts, what God sees when he looks in our hearts is the righteousness of his son. So we know we have his favor. When he looks into our hearts, we see, he, see, he sees the, the atonement of his son on the cross. My debt has been paid. My sins have been paid for, and I've been given the righteousness of Jesus. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whenever we write that on the tablet of our hearts and, and come back and gather as a church and hear that gospel again and believe that gospel again and again and again, when God looks at us, we have his favor because his son has his favor. And so we need to internalize this, bind it around our necks and write it on the tablets of our heart. But how do we do this? That often is, it sounds great, but, but how do I do this? How do I go about that? What does that mean exactly? What's that feel like? What's, what's that look like? Well, the next two verses, the, a command and a promise, I, I believe give us a, a very clear teaching on that. The, the next two verses, verses 5 and verse 6, I bet you these, this is probably, probably the, the two most popular verses in the entire book of Proverbs. The most recited, the most known verses. Here we go, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. What does it mean to trust in the Lord. How, how, how do you think you're doing when it comes to, like if, if I were to sit down and we were to have coffee and I was, are you trusting in the Lord? What would your answer, where would you start to answer that? How would you gauge your trust in the Lord? Do you trust the Lord and what is that looking like in your life right now? Is it wholehearted? Or is it, is it more half-hearted, quarter-hearted? I don't know. Is it, is it kind of? You ever, you ever do one of the Maybe you're like me, and I bet you, I bet you, several of you have. Have you ever been in one of those situations in which you have been subjected to uh, team building exercises? Those are the worst, right? Especially if you're kind of introverted, you, you especially help, uh, can't stand team building exercises. Well, the worst team building exercise of all is the trust fall. Have you ever done the trust fall, where the people they they get <laughs> somebody has so that. They get there, and you know, everybody holds hands, the group holds hands, and you stand up on a chair, and you just fall back, and they're just going to catch you. That is the worst team-building exercise. I hate that one more than any other team-building exercise. And that's saying something because I hate them all. 
The, the, trust, the trust fall is, it, I, I can never trust them. I've never been able to just let go and fall. Every single time I've attempted that, I, I have never just trusted in the group to catch me. I can't do it. There's like some sort of mental block in my mind. I'll stand up there on the chair and I'll start to lean back. And you know, there's that one last little moment, that last little moment, the point of no return that you get just before that and, and you think, if I don't do something right now, I got to trust every one of those fools. I, no, and so at that moment, right, in my mind, <laughs> as I'm falling, when I get to that point, man, I buckle over, I'm grabbing people, I'm, there's no way. I just, I can't do it. I can't do it. You know, I, I think it's often the case that when we gauge how we trust in the Lord, we kind of act like that. We treat Christianity like that. We treat God like that. We just can't fully, we'll, we'll get up on the chair, we'll start to fall <laughs> But when, when push comes to shove, when you get at that one point in which you know you can't save yourself, it's just hard not to start to do something there. So I, I think too many churchgoers, they approach the faith like this too often. When it, God sounds great, church sounds great, but, but when it comes to giving up control or, or giving up what it means to have a say in what morality means or, or something like that, when it gets to that point in which I just got to just got to let go and trust that God's version of morality is the best, that's the point in which they decide, well, I think I'm going to bail now. When it gets to that point in which they, they start to fall and they get to that point and they're, they're like, well, you gotta, you got to give up control now of who you, it's not, it's not about who you think God is supposed to be. You don't get to tweak who he is. You got to just fully trust in, in God's word and, and, and how he describes himself. When they get to that point, they start to bail and so trusting in the Lord looks more half-hearted or quarter-hearted or not very hearted at all. So I, I really think, like, when it comes to trusting in the Lord, the most practical way to gauge this is how, do you, how much do you trust his word, right? To, to trust, like the Hebrew word for trust, it means to throw one's self down on one's face. You're just completely trusting God, you, you're giving up all control, and I'm totally trusting in you. And that's a hard posture to live in. But a way that we gauge it is how much do we trust his word? Like, do you agree with it all the time, or do you agree with it sometimes? When it comes to God's word, like, if you agree with it sometimes, it's probably just a coincidence. Like, I, you, can, you can go through and examine all of, all of these different religions, and you can go through different worldviews, and, and you would probably after having examined each one of these worldviews, you would at least agree with that worldview sometimes, right? There'd be some overlap as to what good is and what bad is, right? So, I mean, if you just, if you just agree with the Bible sometimes, it's, it's probably just a coincidence. Like, if you carry this Bible around like it's some broken crutch that you can't use, how's it going to straighten your path out according to what it says, I mean, if I lean on this, it's going to snap, so I'm not going to lean on it. It just doesn't make any sense. And so this is what has informed our faith from the beginning. So any version of Christianity in which you half-heartedly adhere to the Word of God, it just doesn't make any sense. And so some people, they just don't want to adhere to everything that the Bible says because they've been listening to something else. They've been convinced by some other voice or some other movement that some of this is evil. Right? That's what, that's what that perverted speech means that we studied in the previous chapters. People try to talk about 
our faith in a way that makes certain aspects of it that say that it's good, but they talk about it as if bad. So they make what's bad sound good and what's good sound bad. Sometimes we just start listening to those voices and we start to consider, well, maybe they're right. You know, maybe that part of the Bible is wrong. Maybe, you know, God says this is, this is a sin, but I, I'm just not so sure. They say it's not a sin. So who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to trust in for morality? Are you going to listen to this voice or are you going to listen to that voice? And so what does the Bible say about itself? Verses 7 and 8, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Isn't it often the case that when people talk about Christian morality and when they disagree with it, they don't just disagree with it in a way that says, well, you know, uh, you, you believe that, I believe this. They'll disagree with it in a way they'll say, like, actually that belief of morality that is evil and harmful to society. And then people start to believe in that. Like they hear that so frequently, they hear that so often, that they're like, oh man, is that Christian belief harmful to society? I don't want to harm anyone, right? They make what is good sound bad. And so people are like, well, I don't want to be portrayed as harmful. I don't want to be portrayed as evil. So I'll half-heartedly adhere to both of these things, depending on, depending on the audience and God's word says his, his teachings, his commands, they're not harming anyone. As a matter of fact, it's just the opposite. They are healing to your flesh. It just says, Jesus says, be the salt of the earth. Be that which is good, that which preser preserves good in this world. These teachings are for the good of you and others. This is refreshment to your bones. It's, it's restoration. So turning Turning to the world's ways, that's what will end in decay and death. Turning to the Lord's ways, this is what ends in restoration and life, life in abundance. And when you live a life that, that has this abundance according to the commands of God, something will happen in your life. You will become a more generous human being because you have more security. Being secure in what God teaches, being secure in his ways makes you a more generous person because secure people are generous people. Always. Listen to what he says next. In verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Honor the Lord. We're talking about trusting the Lord. Now we're talking about honoring the Lord. Uh, like that Hebrew word means like heavy. It's a weighty matter to talk about the Lord. We want to show respect and reverence and we want to honor God. We don't want to make light of God. Right? We don't, we don't want to not take him seriously. We want to honor God with our wealth even. Do you honor God with your wealth? That's actually a, a practical way to see if you are honoring God. Like we, we, I think he's giving us some very practical tools to examine our hearts and minds. Like, am I living this out? I say I trust the Lord, so am I doing this? Here's a way to gauge it. I, I say I honor God, but how do I gauge that? Well, you know, honor God with what you have. That's a, a way to, to gauge whether or not you are honoring God. I mean... Uh, now, anytime I talk about a verse that talks about giving or, or tithing or things of those natures, like, I, I'm, I've been pretty open about my apprehensiveness to all of that, right? Like, sometimes I get nervous. 
In the history of the journey, we've never even passed an offering plate. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that I get nervous, that I'm going to be associated with all of these, you know, prosperity pastors that are always shaking people down for money. And some people have, have just been so turned off from Christianity by all these guys that are just constantly telling you uh, uh, to give and, and just give a little bit more, just give a little bit more, and promising you the world if you just give a little bit more. And I'm so scared I'm going to be associated with those guys that I oftentimes hold back from even talking about giving. And so I, a disclaimer before I talk about this first, like, I don't want your money. God doesn't need your money. Okay? This is, this is uh, teaching us, though, how we should think about our money. And so I'm not going to hold, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to shy away from what the Bible actually does say about how we should be generous with our wealth. So when we read, honor the Lord with your wealth, we might tend to play games with that. Well, I'm going to honor the Lord with my time and my talents and my treasures. And so we emphasize, emphasize the time and the talents so that we don't have to give up our treasures. I'll double down on my time. I'll double down on my talents, but my treasures, so, so we may, so the way that this fleshes out in our mind, we're like, well, honor God with my wealth? Well, of course. Well, I'll pay my bills with my wealth because that's honoring God when I pay my bills on time. That's honoring God when I provide for my family. It's honoring God when I take my wife out to dinner. Those things are honoring God with, with your wealth. But, but when you look at a more literal translation of this, uh, and, and if you have the NASB, you're reading it, it says, honor the Lord from your wealth specifically. As in, give him a cut of your actual wealth. More specifically, the first fruits of it. The first fruits, not the leftovers. So I think what that looks like now, like in our, in our day, whenever you're making your budget, like how much can I give to the kingdom this year? I want to give it the first fruits. Now again, I, I don't encourage anyone to get overly legalistic when it comes to giving, but it should be a high, high priority. Honoring God from our wealth is a high, high, high value in our system of belief. We want to give to God's kingdom. We want to see it advance in practical ways, and so we help fund it. So when we're putting our budget together, we're asking ourselves, how much of this should I keep, and how much of this should I give? We know everything is his anyway, right? We want to steward what he gives us well, all to his glory. And so secure people can do this. Insecure people are hoarding and protecting and guarding, and that's not, you know, I'm, I'm not going to give that up. That's where my security is. But people who are living in the shalom of God, the peace of God, the security of God, they can be more generous with what they have. And so now you say, well, now wait a second. This does say that I will have barns filled with plenty. My vats will be bursting with wine. It does promise me, though, that if I give, I'm going to get more. And so people start to, that's, that's where the prosperity pastors, man, they grab, they latch onto that verse, dude. They're, they'll play, they will play people's greed like a fiddle. Listen for it. When they give up an offering, they're going to emphasize, they're going to emphasize verse 10. Do you want more? Do you want more abundance? Do you want more stuff? Do you want more money? Well, then give. So they will play on your greed. But I want you to think about this. If you read verse 10 and it arouses greed in your heart, and so then you are motivated to give so that you can receive more, if greed is what is aroused, 
You know you're reading it wrong. God would never arouse greed in your heart. But he will give. There will be a consequence. He wants us, he wants us to be generous people so that he can bless us with more so that we can be more generous. It's all about him. It's never about us. It's all about, it's all about giving to the kingdom and benefiting the kingdom more. Matthew Henry, maybe you've heard of this, his commentaries. He says it this way. God will bless you with an increase of that which is for good use, not for show, for giving away, not for hoarding. Those who do good with what they have shall have more to do good with. That's what this promise is saying. And so this, the peace of God, it creates generous people. You know, all, 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 of, these, all of these commands and, and all of these promises, they may have... Uh, mustered up some guilt in your heart today. Maybe when you're thinking about each one of these commands, like the, you know, giving away of your wealth and things like that, or, or whatever it may be, any of these commands, maybe you're feel, feeling a little guilty, maybe you're feeling a little miserable, maybe you're feeling a little uh, unworthy. Oh, man, I'm just, <laughs> I'm not doing so good when it comes to his commands. Uh, I, mean, I got a little chaos in my life because i am not been cherishing his commands. Well, there's a reason for that. Well, you know, you, you have forsaken the love and the kindness of God, and so you're feeling the consequences of that. You feel a little insecure about your relationship with God. You feel a little insecure about your relationships with other people. There's a reason for that. You know, leaning on the under, maybe you've been leaning on your own understanding. It's been more in your mind. It's been, you're just wise in your own eyes, and so you've not reaped the benefits of trusting in the Lord. Well, there's a reason there's consequences for those actions. Those consequences are God's mercy. Verse 11 and 12 that we're going to close with, they presuppose that you will not live up to these commands. You're going to fall short. Solomon, as he's teaching his son, he knows he's not going to cherish God's commands in, in completely, wholeheartedly, all of the time. He knows he's going to forsake the love and the, and the faithfulness of God at times. He knows he's not going to ad adhere to the word of God all the time. And he knows he's going to fall short. And so... He teaches him, verses 11 and 12, to encourage him and to let him know, hey, there's going to be consequences then when you fall short of this, and that is God's mercy. One author I read calls it severe mercy. Let's read verses 11 and 12. We've, we've read it recently when we were in Hebrews because it's quoted there. But it says in verse 11, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in him, uh, in whom he delights. When you fall short of these things, when you fall into disobedience, there's going to be consequences. And God's le God lets you suffer those consequences because he loves you. Just like you let your child suffer the consequences of disobedience because you love them. You want to show them a better way, so you discipline them. When we think of discipline, that's often a word we don't, it doesn't make us feel good. To be disciplined Right? If you're a parent, you've disciplined your kid and they've given you that look where they're just like, I despise what you're saying. <laughs> have your kids ever looked at you like that? Or maybe you have looked at your parents like that? I just despise every word coming out of your mouth right now. Because nobody likes getting disciplined. Sometimes, maybe in a, if you've got a teenage kid, maybe you've disciplined them. And they, in the middle of disciplining them and, or lecturing them or whatever it may be, they give you the eye roll. Oh, brother, here it comes. You know I give good le lectures, right? I, I, I speak for a living. So my lectures are good. So sometimes, you know, I'll get the, like, oh, here it comes. I, I got it. I'm, I'm in now. Dad's not going to shut up for an hour. 
He reminds us, hey, don't, don't despise. Don't be weary of that. The Lord's going to discipline in your life. You're a child of God. Don't, don't, don't look at him like that. When you suffer the consequences, don't be weary. You know, when, I, when, I, when my kids do give me that eye roll or, or I, I can see the displeasure in their, in their eyes as they're being disciplined, you know, it's often at that time that I'll, that I'll remind them, hey, I just want you to know, I, me disciplining you, it's not mean. It's actually really kind of me. Look, you can wipe that look off your face, right? <laughs> this isn't me torturing you for fun. I'm not taking your stuff away because I, I want your stuff. It's all my stuff anyway. You don't own anything. Right? <laughs> I'm not doing this because I get giggles out of it, right? I'm doing this because I want a better path. I want a straight path for them. I want them to be good people. I want them to live with peace. I want them to, to live in the peace of obedience and not the chaos of disobedience. So I know, like, I, for a short time, for a short time, I have an opportunity to discipline my kids, but I won't always have that opportunity. But I pray that for the rest of their lives, they are disciplined by the Lord. That's, my, that's one of my biggest hopes for them. I want them to be disciplined by the Lord for the rest of their lives because that's a consequence of being a child of God. It's God's mercy. It's severe mercy. And it's not fun, it doesn't feel good, but don't, don't despise God. Don't be weary of his discipline because this is him being good to you. And, and the way, I think there's a way we don't be, a way we can, we can avoid being weary of God's discipline. There's a way we can avoid despising his discipline. And the way is by looking to Jesus. That's actually why it's quoted in the book of Hebrews. Remember studying in Hebrews, we got to chapter 12. And in chapter 12, we see this exact passage of Scripture quoted. And, and it looks a little bit differently because you've got to realize, we remember when we're studying Hebrews, when Hebrews quotes the Old Testament, it's quoting from the Septuagint. And so that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so, the, so when it's being quoted in Hebrews, what we're reading in English is actually removed two times from the original language. It's gone from, from Hebrew to Greek, and then it's translated into English for us to read. So when you compare uh, the, the quotation in Hebrews to the actual verse in Proverbs, that's why there's some differences, because our English translation is being translated directly from the Greek. When we read the New Testament quote, and when we read in Proverbs chapter 3, it's being translated into English directly from Hebrew. And so there's, there's some differences there, but it's pretty clear that it's exactly the same verse. But let me read to you the context. Because it teaches us how not to grow weary and despise the Lord and his discipline. In verse 3 of chapter 12 in Hebrews, it says, Consider him, speaking of Jesus, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Here it is. Nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son who receives him. So in the book of Hebrews, we're told if you're tempted to grow weary in your suffering, if you're tempted to despise the Lord in your suffering, which we all are, look to Jesus. When we're in the midst of that suffering, we're saying things like, why, God, why would you allow this? When we're in the midst of that suffering, we're saying, man, Again, Lord, where are you? Don't despise, don't grow weary. 
Think of him who is entirely sinless, and that's emphasized over and over in the book of Hebrews. Consider him who is entirely sinless. He suffered. It says, it says that he even learned obedience through suffering in Hebrews. And so we are too. So we look to the cross in the midst of suffering in our lives because we want to seize the opportunity to, to grow in holiness. We want to seize the opportunity, as it says in Hebrews, to be trained by that suffering. And so when we are in Christ and we suffer, we know God doesn't let you suffer because he doesn't like you. God doesn't let you suffer because he hates you. All right, that's not true. That's a lie. We are in Christ. We have his favor. He loves us. He wants what's best for us. And so therefore he disciplines us. Just like a father disciplines his son and wants what's best for him. So let's be holy in the midst of suffering. Let's be trained by it. That is what wisdom looks like in the bad days. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much uh, for the book of Proverbs and its commands. As I pondered each one of these commands, Lord, I, I was just overwhelmed by all of the different struggles I've had in my life. So often I am just lured away by so many different things. I don't, I don't let my heart keep your commandments, Lord. I, I let my heart listen to other, other truths, other voices. And then I wonder why I am where I am sometimes. But Lord, I, I'm just so grateful that you, you give us your word to, to make us aware of your offering of wisdom and, and bring us back to the truth that has saved us, that's redeemed us, and that secures us and helps us to, to feel peace. And Lord, I pray from that peace that we are able to be a blessing to others, that we are able to be generous people. And Lord, that we can spread your gospel uh, to others and see your kingdom advance. It's in your name, Jesus.